Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Film is Lit podcast, the podcast Let me stop you right there. Drop the the. Just Film is Lit podcast. It's cleaner. Hi, nice to meet you. I'm Justin Timberlake. I'm good friends with your co-host, Danny Gaylord. You know what I love most about Danny Gaylord? Mm, What? He's better looking than me and a better singer. Well, I gotta go. Friend me on Facebook. Oh my God. Thank you so much, Justin, for dropping by. Oh, What a thrill. Hey, hey, Laura, my wife. Uh, Did you see, was Justin here? He was just here. Did you miss him? We're on a first name basis. (laughs) He's such a card, that guy. Well, welcome to the Film is Lit podcast, or as my friend JT likes to say, just Film is Lit. This is Film the po- is Lit pod. Right. This is the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. This is a full spoilers podcast. This is a podcast with no agenda. We don't care what we say or what we do. And I'm Laura. <laughs> <laughs> you are? She, her, I'm the, the uh, lit expert. And you know what? I don't say this often enough, but I look forward to recording this with you every week. I love talking about stuff. I love hearing your thoughts on film and lit, and I love sharing mine with you. So thanks for having me again <laughs> as your co-host. <laughs> I'm indifferent. <laughs> Shut up. Uh, No, those words mean a lot. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I love you. That's right. We're a real life married couple. Yeah. Two months, I guess. Oh, we just three. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's August. (laughs) Hello. We got married three months ago. It was a blast. And yeah, we started this podcast, if you don't know. During COVID, we were not engaged not when even. we started it, and yeah. then about half a year into this podcast, we got engaged, and then now we're married. So, longtime listeners, they've been with us for a while. They've seen our whole journey. Yeah, it's been it's been quite the ride, and we we're still going. We're, we're on series seven right mm-hmm. now. We do episodes of ten in each Ish. series. Yeah, uh, roughly. Yeah, and yeah, it's been a blast. I enjoy doing this good too. to check in with your podcast co-host every once in a while this this has become like what we do during our free time yeah which has been a lot like studying for this podcast of course reading the books and watching the movies but yeah it's this is a big part of our lives it's yeah. very fun hope to do it for years more yeah forever as long as it's fun right that <laughs> as was long your, as that it's was your fun. first rule as long and as it's cool. fun and yeah, if we can create good content. <laughs> right. Kind of analogous to Facebook. People are on it until it starts to become less cool and now people are dropping like flies. So I, I know that you're trying to use that as a segue, but I will defend the fact that I'm still on Facebook. <laughs> That's I, the only social media that I have. Of all people, <laughs> the bleeding heart woke liberal Laura still on Facebook? Yeah. Who would have thought? It's it's because I ha- there are so many reasons. I mean, I feel like you honestly can't be... Nowadays, you can't be on social media without being on a meta platform. Right. So, honestly, it's not even a matter of, like, quote-unquote, the lesser of two or three or four or five evils. It's just... it. I've kind of settled into the boomer mentality of, like, this is what I know... This is where all of my data is. 
Yeah. Listeners will probably notice that I operate the Facebook page and Danny operates the the Instagram. Insta, which gets a lot more hits. <laughs> Usually well, I post on Facebook and I'm like, nobody liked it. Nobody shared it. And well, Danny's like, Cindy nobody Gilmore has a Facebook it. anymore. <laughs> yeah. As much as I make fun of you for using Facebook a lot, I can't defend Instagram. I mean, Instagram is being corrupted with ads and it and TikToks <laughs> and and well TikToks yeah too people are just posting TikToks and there's a mass exodus going on with Instagram as well not oh, as severe as Facebook yeah Facebook I, crickets crickets yeah if you post anything on Facebook <laughs> I mean I'm still on Facebook but rarely do I go on there to I you know promote this podcast as well yeah. and post pictures of our wedding right. on there, but rarely do I go. Otherwise, on... our parents' boomers' friends will be like, "Where are your pictures?" Right. <laughs> and honestly, it is fun to keep up with my parents' friends. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a time and place. I yeah. I don't use Facebook a lot other than to post political articles, but it's like I said, crickets. It, it is a little bit of a thing of the past. Yeah. But. The origin story will never not be interesting. There's corruption, there's selfishness, there's betrayal. It's very much like a Greek tragedy. Yeah. Set in the modern times because it's true right. story. And now we can segue into our episode. So <laughs> we will be covering the 2009 book, The Accidental Billionaires by Ben Mesrick. And it is nonfiction-ish, but more accurately, it is sensationalized nonfiction. Right. And what I appreciated most about the book is right up front, Ben Mesrick states that this is my best recreation of what people would have said during these meetings, during these depositions, during Mark Zuckerberg's college years. But this is not an exact replication of what happened. It's also important to note that while he worked with Eduardo Saverin and the Winklevoss brothers, or the Winklevi, as Aaron <laughs> Sorkin kind of calls them in the in this movie script, he was not working with Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. While he was working on this, I think he also worked with Sean Parker. I think he at least interviewed him. Mm-hmm. So, if not to the extent that Eduardo was. Mm-hmm. All of those quote-unquote characters are interviewed at least before the book, but Mark Zuckerberg was not. I think that's an important thing to to note. But, of course, if you have heard of The Accidental Billionaires, you probably know what movie is based on this book, and it is the, might I say, flawless, objectively flawless masterpiece directed by David Fincher came out in 2010. In fact, Ben Mesrick was finishing up the text while he started working with Aaron Sorkin to write the script. Yeah. So these are sort of... These are some big names here. Yeah, you're some big out. names I've thrown out. So fun fact, this is the fourth David Fincher movie we're covering on this podcast. So we've covered Fight Club. Uh-oh. <laughs> we've covered The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And we've covered Gone Girl. Actually, Gone Girl was first. That's so now right. this is the fourth, second fun fact of the night. You ready for this? No. <laughs> so we are recording on Sunday, August 28th. Just so happens to be David Fincher's 60th birthday. No way. Happy birthday, oh. David Fincher. 
shout out. Um, I guess you're one of our favorite directors by default. Oh yeah. So the not au- by default. You've earned it. But <laughs> right. The author who who we've covered the most is Stephen King. We've covered Stephen King four and a half times. That's disgusting. But also he earned it. And yeah, the director who we've covered the most is David Fincher That's four so times. Funny. Oh, I didn't even notice that. I'm glad you're coming into this with some fun facts. Yeah. So happy birthday, David. Your career has inspired generations of aspiring filmmakers, myself included, that leads expertly into our journeys. May I? Oh, just take it away. So, 2009, freshman in high school. This is a period in my life where I blossomed as a cinephile. I truly came into the understanding that I wanted to do this for the rest of my life. Make films. Mm Mm-hmm pursue the arts Mm -hmm. listen every cinephile loves david fincher it's a stereotype by this point well-deserved stereotype however you cannot deny the precision of his films the influence of his films and the coolness and i was gonna say might i add television shows oh yes right it's one of our favorites came came later and it's a little awkward to talk about now but house of cards kind of pioneered the netflix model which Mm -hmm. is dropping everything at at once house of cards wasn't the first netflix show but it was the first netflix show to become popular in america and thus the world so and that was david fincher produced speaking of house of cards actually we noticed in the beginning of this film that kevin spacey produced executive producer and we didn't know that before this watch for some reason it just jumped out Maybe because it was the first time I'd watched it since that whole thing went right. down. But so, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Are little... they were they tight or like friends? Yeah. They were because they okay. worked they worked together on Seven. Okay, gotcha. which is so, that's, so that makes more sense that he would have yeah. produced this. So but... yeah, worked together, met on Seven, became great friends. But uh, moving quickly on. <laughs> yeah, moving quickly on. <laughs> from that dark period of David Fincher's right. life. So freshman year of high school, major major david fincher fan i was even a bigger fan of nine inch nails now this is <laughs> oh my goodness i was the most angsty during freshman year and nine inch nails really spoke to me really still speaks really to scratched me. your chalkboard oh yes still speaks <laughs> to me love nine inch nails i think well now it's them it used to be just trent Reznor. now atticus ross his partner in work in work yeah has now j- since joined but in 2009, it was just Trent Reznor. So, huge fan of both those groups. Then, Sorry, NIN for insiders? Yes. NIN? N-I-N, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, summer of 2010, the trailer for The Social Network comes out. Now, most of David Fincher's movies are about serial killers. <laughs> <laughs> Here comes this movie about Facebook and I, you watch the trailer, which is a good trailer, but I was shocked that David Fincher, of all people, was covering a story about Facebook. Mm. The whole internet at the time, their reaction was, what's the story here? Mm. So a smart guy... So what's the joke? Right. <laughs> a smart guy at Harvard made this site and subsequently made billions of dollars. Like, okay, what's... There's no real drama here. And even if there was, you're making a whole movie about it? So I was super disappointed just by the prospect of this movie. 
and I didn't see it in theaters, mostly because when you're a freshman in high school, you don't have money or a license, so mm-hmm. I wasn't really like going to movies that often, so I didn't see this. It wasn't until 2011, granted I'm an even bigger David Fincher fan, because I had already seen Girl the Dragon Tattoo, which we covered a few seasons mm-hmm. ago, and I knew that Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross did a score for that. I love the score. I knew that the Social Network score beat out Inception's score at mm. the 2011 Oscars. Now, <laughs> were you a bit bitter about that? <laughs> I was bitter because Inception, as much as a fan as I was of David Fincher and Nine Inch Nails, Inception truly changed my life mm. and it became my personality. What are you, a white male? <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Snaps. Um, <laughs> so. I went into this film bitter about its winning over Inception for a lot of categories, including editing, too. So I watched this at home and blown away. Everyone remembers where they were when they first saw this movie. It is an undisputed masterpiece. I can't think of a single person who doesn't like this movie. Do you, do you know if your brother saw it in the theater? Or did they see it on your recommendation late? I don't think either. I mean, maybe I recommended it to them, but I think they, I don't think they saw it in the theaters because, well, Matt was busy with his career right outside of college and he was like working like Mm -hmm. 90 hour work week. So he didn't really watch movies at that time. Mm -hmm. Tim was in college partying it up. So (laughs) I, I, and doing well in his studies. Also killing it. Yep. Graduated from UVA with honors. <laughs> so No shade toward Tim. Right, yeah. It's, um, it's no BU, but... Uh, <laughs> oh, there's some BU shade in this movie. We'll get to that. Uh-huh. So, anyway. yeah, blown away with it. The score quickly became... I quickly yeah. understood. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, the, I understand now why this won over Inception. Inception, uh, an amazing... Composed by Hans sc- Zimmer. Yes. Right? Composed by Hans Zimmer, amazing score. But this score is an all-timer. Yeah. And I have some fun facts about the making of the score that we'll talk about later. So, yeah, become obsessed with this movie. It's currently my number seven favorite movie of all time. I doubt it'll be pushed out of the top ten in my life. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I mean, who knows? You never know what happens. But mm-hmm. it's it's cemented in my top ten mm-hmm. and hasn't moved. So, yeah, love it. Mm-hmm. And I listened to the audiobook on our trip back from Napa. We went to my cousin's wedding in Napa Valley, which is beautiful. That was fun. Shout out to Drew and Lauren. Yes. Beautiful wedding. And yeah, on the ride back, listen to it. It is the perfect length for an audiobook, eight hours, which I love. And the movie, perfect length, two hours. I say this all the time. <laughs> Two hours is the sweet spot, baby. And this movie is two hours exactly. Yeah. I love it. You do say that. All right. Your journey. Well, I'm going to wrap this up pretty quick. I believe that I saw this with an ex-boyfriend at some point, but I know that the person that I was dating at that time, I had a very low opinion of. And so anytime that he's... And I'll, I'll prove this to everybody listening. This isn't a subjective opinion. I think his favorite movie was like the second Planet of the Apes. and The old one? or No, no, like the new Planet oh, of the Apes. I mean, it's a good movie, but favorite movie? My point is <laughs> he took me to some really bad movies when we were going out. And Suicide this Squad. was in college. 
right? He yeah, yeah, stuff like that that I just like was not into. Oh, um, Fast and Furious Seven. I saw that in theaters because this guy wanted oh, to see God. it. So my point is that he had terrible movie taste, and so he. My put brothers this on. right now are pissed at you. They love those movies. <laughs> I don't have anything to say to that. Moving on. <laughs> Moving on. Um, so. When any basically when he turned a movie on and it was one of those things where it was like I could never choose a movie that <laughs> to watch together you know he was always turning on a movie so he turned this on and I don't remember if he liked it or if he had never seen it but anyway he turned this on and so I just kind of checked out because I was just like you know ah, this guy likes bad movies I don't care I probably fell asleep I wasn't interested um, mm-hmm. so the first time that I saw it I was not thrilled. Then Danny and I started dating, and I think it was one of those things where you were like, oh, you know, have you seen Social Network? And I said semi-ish, maybe in and out for about half the movie. And, you know, oh, it's one of my favorite movies. We got to watch it together, and we watched it. And I really enjoyed it, but I think that was also before (laughs) you had, like, coached me to be a film critic mm-hmm. <laughs> in a sense so i did Before really I like indoctrinated it indoctrinated you yeah yeah <laughs> and so i did really like it but i don't know that it hit me in the same way that it actually hit me this friday so that would have been my third time and for some reason i was just enthralled yeah the third time that i watched this it was so engaging like i said at the top of the episode i think it is one of the most flawless movies out there yeah i love it i read the book for the first time for this podcast i read it a couple maybe about a month ago to three weeks and i'll be honest i think i've said this multiple times on the podcast but i don't like biopics for the reason that it frustrates me that like i can't get a full story out of a biopic, I feel like every time I watch one, I have to go back and, like, re-educate myself on, like, what are the actual facts? Right. What was sensationalized? I don't like that process because then I start getting, like, fact and fiction mixed up in my head. Yeah. There are parts of the book where Ben Mesrick goes, evidence suggests this what happened. And I was listening to that being like, ooh, Laura's not going to like that. So one of the things that bugs me about biopics is dialogue. Mm-hmm. Because... For the most part, you're not working with real people to reconstruct, you know, how they talk, stuff like that. You're you're working with memory at best if you are working with someone who's really closely involved with action in, in a show, whatever. And so I just get really hung up on that, on how dramatized stuff is. I think that's where I'm like really, really hard on biopics. And so when I started reading this and I kind of realized that that's it was kind of a biopic book it is very sensationalized i was like ah i went in with a little bit of a predetermined attitude on how i was gonna like this and it 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 turned out to not be the my favorite thing maybe that we've ever read on the podcast Mm -hmm. i think the writing is not great i think it's fairly redundant and i think that there are some heavy-handed moments i think there's some heavy-handed writing where you know i got the point of the scene or whatever like three sentences before it ended 
and I felt a little bit like I was beaten over the head with the point a couple times. I was just like, okay, like, you mm-hmm. know, I get it. Mark Zuckerberg's kind of an asshole or he's self-centered. So I didn't, I didn't love it. But at the same time, I think that Aaron Sorkin swooped in and made it so perfect. Yeah, I think we're pretty far apart in terms of our opinion of the book. I really enjoyed it. But it's almost lessened just by comparison to the movie and specifically to Aaron Sorkin's script because Aaron Sorkin has a specific style. Any one of his scripts, no matter the director, you can always tell in Aaron Sorkin's script. He has, so in life, there's always one person who's the smartest person in the room. Mm -hmm. But in an Aaron Sorkin script, every single person is the smartest person in the room. Yeah. You know how when you get into an argument with someone and then weeks later in the shower, you're like, I should have said that. Like the the Seinfeld episode. Right. Oh, like, oh, I should have said that. (laughs) So in Aaron Sorkin scripts, everyone says the most biting, cutting, smartest thing that you can say. Like Gilmore Girls. Really... Similar, that's, actually, to Amy Sherman Palladino's writing. That's yeah. a very apt comparison there. Can you imagine a movie written by both of those? That'd be people? too much. That's too. Yeah. That's too much. <laughs> and Aaron Sorkin can be too much sometimes because mm. all his characters talk the same way. There's like interrupting dialogue, overlapping, all these quips. Everyone's always spurting facts, which is not like real life. But Aaron Sorkin has been very clear and open in his interviews. He says, I don't try to emulate how people normally talk. That's not my style. I try to, in the most non-condescending and pompous way, create dialogue that sounds like music. Mm. He's like, I try to put movements and rhythm to my dialogue. People don't talk like this. Just like how people in Tarantino movies don't talk like and that. Gilmore Girls yeah, exactly yeah, yeah so the book is very close to the movie in plot and writing and style but the movies has a one-up because Aaron Sorkin does his thing which is not for everyone but I love it and then David Fincher's insane meticulous direction so just by virtue of the fact that it has those two things the book is lessened. It looks amateur when compared to a masterpiece like this. I agree. And while you say that not every Aaron Sorkin movie works, I think in particular the subject matter does work because there's Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. And he is literally described in the book, and I think just by sort of experiencing Jesse Eisenberg, who is cast as him in the movie, there's an experience of him being a computer. Yes. And I think that people who have and have not gone to Harvard sort of expect that people who go to these Ivy League schools are able to talk like this. And I guess in I didn't really think about this before we started recording, but to sort of further the comparison between this movie and Gilmore Girls, you know, Rory Gilmore goes to Yale. Mm-hmm. And I, and so does like Paris Geller, who's her, like one of her friends on the show. And so we seem to have this idea that Ivy League educated people can actually talk like this. Yeah. And not only talk with, you know, facts and stuff, but to my point, like Paris Geller is also kind of this like computer human mm-hmm. where like con- constantly like processing and spouting facts and being extremely accurate and 
to the extremely accurate to the point where they're hurtful yeah. to people. So I think that Aaron Sorkin's style lends itself to this story in particular, and that's why it's extremely effective in this environment right. with David Fincher. And to be honest, we can continue that into David Fincher's directing yes. because his directing, as we've seen, I think most people even know his style for being just continuously and relentlessly like multiple takes. Oh, and yeah. even that is sort of computer-like. And if we're trying to match the style of directing and writing with the subject material, I mean, boom. Like, you get this story and it's perfect. You get this movie and it's like, it's exactly matching the subject matter to the people who are, like, controlling the art of it. So really well meshed in that way. Amen. You just you just did an Aaron Sorkin speech there, too. And that was improvised. <laughs> no. Amen. That is a huge compliment, but I, yes. I won't take it. because So that segues much. nicely into what we do best on this podcast, comparing and contrasting. So before we go into the first difference, I want to say there's an amazing behind-the-scenes documentary that's on YouTube called The Social Network Making of a Masterpiece. All of David Fincher's films have extensive behind-the-scenes documentaries because he has an on-set documentarian named David Pryor who just released his, a film of his own called The Empty Man a few years ago. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend The Empty Man to everyone. But yeah, David Pryor, it's this incredible behind-the-scenes making of documentary. It's 90 minutes. I recommend everyone see it. So the first scene that they cover is the first scene of the movie, which is Erica, played by Rooney Mara. Mm -hmm. Who's in Girl with a Dragon, Dragon Tattoo, Tattoo yeah. which would come out a year later. Nice. And Mark Zuckerberg, played by Jesse Eisenberg, who is nominated for an Oscar for yeah. his performance, talking at a bar mm -hmm. in Boston. Oh, and that's another one-up this movie has. I have said this before. I am a Massachusetts boy. I love anything that takes place in Massachusetts, specifically Boston. I went to school at Boston University. I had a great time, a great experience. I have a lot of respect for go this. Go Terriers. Yep, go Terriers. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's just another thing. Whenever I see scenes in Boston, I'm just transported to the time. That's the power of nostalgia, baby. Yeah, mass hole over right. here. Yeah. Mass hole. <laughs> so this scene, the conversation and then the subsequent breakup is not in the book the character of erica was created for the film yeah this opens the movie and before we even see it, it's during the title cards the studio cards before we even get to that you already hear the sorkin dialogue oh, yeah. there lights up people are already talking this opening scene was 10 pages of straight dialogue which for those who don't know, the average opening scene is around three to four pages. Mm -hmm. And that includes like stage directions, not just dialogue. So this is 10 straight pages of dialogue and it's a rapid back and forth. David Fincher has a reputation of doing an insane amount of takes. His whole philosophy is, okay, in the first 20 takes, the actors are going to, they've rehearsed their Oscar winning performance like in the shower the night before. <laughs> Let's get past that. On take 30, <laughs> it's going to start to feel like you're actually in a bar 
and have been talking for hours because you you are you are in a bar and you have been talking for hours doing take after take after take then after take 50 all ego goes out the window and you are just like robotically doing it then once you get past that phase that's when a second nature take 80 take 90 take 99 in the documentary it's crazy they do this opening scene 99 times which takes a whole day Mm -hmm. and that's just the coverage between the two of them they do the rest of the coverage of the whole bar later so they need to do the scene again the next day background yep (laughs) exactly (laughs) so these actors are exhausted but they're motivated because they're working with david fincher everyone wants to work with david fincher they get to take 99 david fincher goes we got it and Aaron Sorkin is also on set. And that's something you see throughout the documentary. Aaron Sorkin is basically the co-director. He's working with David Fincher, which is... Well, usually there's a script supervisor. Right, exactly. On a set. Mm-hmm. And they're usually... They have the script open on their iPad. <laughs> People don't really use paper anymore, I guess. But they have like a script on a screen or, or their paper. And they're going through and, oh, you know, someone needs a line or someone mm-hmm. needs like a correction because they haven't said like the keyword or something like that. They'll yell it out. But Aaron Sorkin does this himself. Right. And he's written the lines as well. So and it's sort of a different experience in that way because you're working with a person who actually wrote your your lines yeah and he's like making creative decisions which screenwriters never do that that's Mm -hmm. the director's job Mm -hmm. but aaron sorkin's on set working with them so they finally get it on take 99 and then the whole crew and the actors they're like well it's 99 we gotta do 100 we're here it's like we're here we're working overtime we gotta get we gotta just do 100 just to do it and then david fincher he pauses looks around the room and goes no. <laughs> and they, that's just the end of it. That David Fincher, he's such a troll, but he but that's the whole deal. That's his whole deal. He doesn't like torture his actors like Stanley Kubrick did. Does he not? His uh, 99 well, takes is not torture. I guess I don't know. it could be considered. But yeah, so that opening scene, we've come across the scene in multiple classes at at BU, like you. screenwriting class. Mm-hmm. Yes, I have. In my <laughs> Contrary to popular belief, I did not go to film school. Yeah. Many people think you have. Though. <laughs> just, so just kidding. Um, in my acting for directors class, we did monologues and mm. uh, two people did this scene. Oh, it's also notable that this scene has not one, but two digs at BU. Mm. Granted, it's not really meant to disparage BU because it's coming from Mark Zuckerberg, who's very conceited and pompous. Yeah. Yeah, I wish, <laughs> I wish that wasn't in there. Of course, like he's saying that you, he, Erica doesn't need to study because she goes to BU, mm-hmm. which is not true. I did plenty of homework, not a lot. I was a film major, but you, you catch my drift. <laughs> so yeah, that's the first difference, and that's a kind of a thread that appears throughout the movie that does not appear throughout the book. I think it's obvious that this didn't really happen. But it posits that part of the reason why Mark Zuckerberg made the site was to get revenge on Erica to show her how successful he could become, but then to impress her and to win her back in a way, which is, again, that thread is not in the book at all. So I think the best thing about the book to me is that 
even though Mark Zuckerberg didn't work with Ben Mesrick to contribute to the story or to fight anything that any of his adversaries, yeah. legally or friendship-wise, I guess, were saying, is that Mesrick never comes out and says, like, you know, Mark's a terrible person. He did or did not take these actions or whatever. I think he does a really beautiful thing, which is to let Mark's actions speak for themselves. Yeah, well and said. And most of Zuckerberg's actions have been documented. I don't think those things are in dispute. And I think one of the things that was really interesting about covering this story in 2022 is that we've seen, I mean, Facebook had a meteoric rise, but now, you know, we can watch recordings of Zuckerberg in front of Congress. Yeah. Being that person in front of Congress. Yeah. <laughs> in front of the nation. So I think if anything, if Mark Zuckerberg was ever on a fence with his behavior and how he comes off, I think he is solidly fallen on the side of villain. <laughs> yes. And so I think the beautiful thing that, again, not only the book does, but also the movie is this idea of just like letting people observe who Mark Zuckerberg is and never really coming down on him. But, you know, if you have him being so personally angered, you know, I mean, I, people get hurt when they're dumped. Yeah. But Mark is beyond bitter yeah. when Erica walks out of the bar in the first scene. And I think that so perfectly sets up what Mark really cares about mm -hmm. because she not only insults his, you know, sort of his manhood, you know, they talk about him not being a, a rowing crew. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a foreshadowing about who the Winklevi twins are. Yep. So, you know, his physicality, but also his inability to be punched yes. by a social club at Harvard. She really goes after him multiple times in the conversation, I think at least twice, if not three times. And that tells, without telling the audience, that gives people enough clues to pick up on the fact that he's so insecure mm -hmm. about being a nerd or a geek that he literally cannot take that and he takes that out on this one person who's in the right, too. Like, everyone yes. can see that Erica's not even being mean. She's literally, like, everyone's on their last straw along, right along with Erica. Yeah, she's like, I'm just saying that to be nice. I have no intention of being your friend. Exactly. Yeah. So the fact that everyone's on Erica's side when she walks out of the bar, and then the whole next scene is Mark Zuckerberg slash Jesse Eisenberg running to his dorm to write that Erica's a bitch on the internet which so perfectly sets up who Mark Zuckerberg is and the manipulative actions that he takes afterward because he wants to be socially accepted. That's that's insane. What a complex opening scene. Yes. Which in real life when Mark made face match, he did on his blog mention a woman and mm -hmm. said she was yeah. A bitch, but it was not related to the Erica we see in the movie. But yeah, brilliantly said. Mark is a person who craves attention so much that when his flaws are pointed out to him, he views that as a threat to his mm -hmm. status and his only uh, 
any threat to his status, right, is he'll lash out. Yeah. Not, maybe not verbally, but with his actions, mm-hmm. which is proven in real life and in the movie. Fun fact about him running through Harvard, the production team did not have permits to shoot at Harvard. Really? So they illegally just what's called guerrilla filmmaking, which is you just show up to a site and they shot it in like a few hours of just him running through the That's Harvard so campus. Fun. So something that I love about that is how collegiate it feels mm-hmm. because even though like I, uh, I didn't go to any kind of Ivy League college, as everyone knows, I went to obviously a very small private little tiny college in Jamestown, North Dakota. Um, it feels like when I was going home from the library, I feel like every single student can so viscerally respond to that opening. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of chilly. You know, he's running through a bunch of students who are coming home as well. I love that scene. Yep. Yeah. So, and then that's our first instance we hear of Trent Reznor and Atticus <gasps> Ross's score. The Oscar- oh, it's amazing. Os- it's so good. Oscar winning score. Love it. And then... Right after that scene, we get the one-two punch of him creating Face Smash and then of people using Face Smash. Yeah. So in the book, this happens a little bit later, but it's structured in the movie right at the start. And the movie also makes the change that Mark and Eduardo Saverin are already close friends. Mm-hmm. But like roommates, re- kind of. Do you, are, they, are they roommates? They're or? not roommates, but they seem like best friends. Yeah which wasn't actually the case. So Mark and Eduardo met the year they made Facebook. Right. So Eduardo's junior year, Mark's sophomore year. The movie changes it that they're already super tight. And I love I love the Aaron Sorkin dialogue where Zuckerberg's like, I need you. And Eduardo's like, I'm here for you. He's like, no, I need your algorithm, which uh, comparing. And so mm-hmm. the one-two punch I'm talking about is the montage of... Mark Zuckerberg going through all the Harvard Facebooks for all the houses and creating Face Mash. And which which we should maybe explain is the ability to have two women's faces come up and people are able to vote on which one's hotter. It's yes. completely different from Facebook. This yeah. is like his first site that right. he creates out of revenge. Which he did yeah, in real life. In real life, yeah. right. So the movie sensationalizes it a bit, but the score during the scene is called In Motion, one of the greatest pieces of score, yeah. I think, of all time. And then right after that, we get another montage of all the students across Harvard using it, and that piece of score is called A Familiar Taste. Mm-hmm. It starts with Eduardo writing the uh, algorithm on his window, and we go from there. Incredible succession of scenes. So what I really want to highlight about this, like you said, succession of scenes, is that I think Mark in the beginning is young, still, again, freshman in college, we're all very young at that point, everyone's like 19, 18, 19, 20, maybe, and I do think that he wants to believe that he's better than everyone expects him to be. Like, he does know that he have, he has a lot of skills, he's really mm-hmm. smart. He's probably the smartest person in the room for the most part. Yeah. And what I think is beautiful about this is that even though he thinks he's morally better than everyone, he is juxtaposed against a frat party 
where women are dropped off and are exploited by the boys in the Phoenix Club who are, it's again, a social club that is all about relationships, like hooking up, partying, you know, kind of the shallow stuff that happens in college. And so his behavior is juxtaposed against their reaction to his behavior. Mm-hmm. And it's just as objectifying. Right. And I think that that really sets up who Mark is. Like, he wants to believe that he's this really smart, like, better person because he's a geek, because I think he's been bullied. And no, what he's attracted to is the power that those social clubs can offer people. And again, later in the movie, that's why he's so threatened by Eduardo's again, like, quote-unquote, punch by the Phoenix Club. And, oh, my gosh, the the two lines that he uses to take down Eduardo's, like, next-level status into joining that Phoenix Club are so biting and so pointed. And it proves that that's all that Mark has ever cared about, is being accepted into these social groups. So, anyway, that second scene, third scene, whatever, that juxtaposition between, like, how he's allowed this gross group of people to operate is brilliant. It's yeah. beautiful. It's so telling about who Mark is. And it's like really a red flag about what we're going to see in the future and how he behaves. Yeah. You brought up this great double thread, which comes up in the movie, which is entitlement. So there's digital entitlement and then actual literal mm. entitlement. So the brilliance of the character of Mark Zuckerberg in the movie is that he is a villain, but you have the secondary villains of the Winklevi twins. Yeah. Even though you don't like Zuckerberg, you like watching him verbally and literally strike down yes. these twins. Yes. So it's an incredible thing that's happening here. You hate this character, but you love watching him succeed at certain moments. It's insane. I don't know how they... And it, yeah. Oh, yeah. Continue. So you have the digital, like, online entitlement, which is what Mark Zuckerberg is good at. He can't communicate with people. Right. He's just... He's not Clearly. Ab- it's been clearly. set up. Right. In the yeah. movie already. Yeah. He's not able to communicate... But what he can do is tell you how he feels through his business actions. actions. Yeah. So he he shows that he wants that social connection, even though he can't literally do it. The other thread is the Winklevi twins who come from a family of means and throughout their whole lives, everything has worked out for them. And this is the first time, as Mark says, the mm-hmm. first time that something hasn't worked out for them. So they're lashing out. So this is the literal entitlement. These are two six foot five crew rowers. Crew rowers, <laughs> attractive. They've had no problems in life. They get go to Harvard. Go to Harvard. They can get any girl that they want. They're going to be rowing for the Olympic team. They are stars. So they think they're entitled to this site, even though they didn't have the actual ability to make it, and even though their idea is not exactly the idea of Facebook. They they just wanted a hookup site for Harvard kids. Yeah, I think it, it supplies the seed. Mm-hmm. And not only does that bring up an interesting conversation about IP, it also brings up an interesting conversation or complexity in their character because they keep saying, you know, we're playing by the rules. Yes. It's, it's not fair to steal. And to their point, you know, it's not. But... 
the rules in especially American society have been set up to serve people like the Winklevi. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So in a lot of ways, you're like against them so hard because you see people like that succeed and you're like, yeah, you're playing by the rules, but the rules are rigged. So you, you do start to get onto Mark Zuckerberg's side, but on the same time, like on its face, they're both, you know, privileged Mm -hmm. white men (laughs) or they're all privileged white men. So yeah, it really sets up this like complex mind fuck that honestly, I feel like every time you watch the movie, you might be on someone's different side. Right. Just because you might be in a different place in your life. Like, you know, what if an idea of yours had recently been, mm-hmm. you know, maybe not lifted or copied, but utilized mm-hmm. in some way and someone got rich, you might be on the Winklevi side. So it's a really great way of setting up a conflict. Yeah. The first few times I watched this movie, I was on Mark Zuckerberg's side, but I didn't want him to succeed because at the end of the day, he still is a billionaire and the settlements he had to give to Eduardo and the Winklevi, it's like a parking ticket, like Aaron Sorkin Right, yeah. But this past time, yeah, you really, after reading the book, and you really see all the microaggressions of Mark Zuckerberg. Like, I think the great lines that Aaron Sorkin provides, he's like, it probably was a diversity punch. Oof. That's so mean. So yeah. that's that's to Eduardo. Right. When Eduardo finds out that he's made it to the next level of rush, kind yeah. of, or punch for the, for the Phoenix Club. And he's really excited. And then Mark brings him down yeah. <laughs> a pegger. Five. Yes. <laughs> With that line. And then the second time Eduardo gets punched, Mark says, like, oh, that's great. Most people don't get a second punch. Like, don't feel bad if you don't make it on from this point. And this past time, I've seen this movie countless times, but for some reason, this last watch, you really see the conniving nature of Zuckerberg, especially when he repeats Erica's line to the Winklevi twins in the in the bike room. Deandra is like, oh, this will help with your social status. And then Mark goes, you do that for me? <laughs> Which is a great thing of like, he's, he's flipping what Erica said onto them, but he's kind of missing the point. Erica was saying like, you're being pompous, but you shouldn't react with more by being more pompous, which is what... So the, the Winklevi were being pompous, but that doesn't mean you should connive against them. Well, I want to sort of point out something that you noticed that I had not, and I think that this comes with like a 10th, 11th, 12th viewing of the movie, but there's this great point where Mark has gotten Facebook going And he's already asked Eduardo for money because they need more servers because Facebook is starting to blow up. And they come back to Mark's dorm room and Edward goes into the mini fridge and gets two beers out and sort of cracks them open, assuming that he's going to share one with Mark for their success. And Mark, without noticing, goes to the mini fridge and grabs one for himself. Yes. And then Eduardo is kind of left standing there with two beers. And it's so subtle that you really come to realize that Eduardo sort of had subconsciously grabbed two beers because he's with another person. And I think that he really 
views Mark as a comrade mm-hmm. in this project. And Mark is so focused on himself. He didn't even notice that Eduardo grabbed two beers. Yeah. Not only that, he only grabbed one for himself. Right. He didn't even grab two. It, it would be one thing if Eduardo had grabbed two and then Mark had grabbed two and been like, oh, I grabbed one for Eno. No, he doesn't even do that. Right. He's so self-centered. And you pointed that out to me. And then it, it leaves... um. What's the phrase? Like when you're standing somewhere with your dick in your hand, it kind of (laughs) like makes you look ridiculous, right? But then Eduardo's kind of left standing with two beers and then he eventually kind of subtly puts it on the mantle in the dorm room and walks away. And that was such a telling moment. Right. That's a visual example of how selfish and self-centered Mark is. And you pointed that out to me. So I thought it was really smart and I wanted to bring it up. So the dialogue cannot be improvised in the movie. Aaron Sorkin is like that. He's like, my scripts have this whole operatic rhythm, so you can't just, like, add stuff to it. Everything that was on the page was in the movie, but on set, they do collaborate a lot. Mm. And what David Fincher does is a big uh, faux pas in the directing world, which is he gives line readings, which Mm. is not what you're supposed to do because that very quickly, the director role, you can kind of turn into, like, like a controlling like dictator dictator, (laughs) right you're supposed to be talented enough to mold your actors to go to where they need to go but you're not supposed to directly tell them how to say it but i think the trade-off here is there's an extensive rehearsal period where david fincher aaron sorkin and the actors talk about the scene and that's all they do is talk about it and they mold together how to say it And they change a lot of the blocking and and how they do stuff based on what they're feeling during these rehearsals. An example of that is when they're in Palo Alto, it was supposed to be Mark Zuckerberg who goes on the zip line Mm -hmm. and breaks the chimney. Mm -hmm. But Jesse Eisenberg flew out the idea of saying like, hey, I don't think Mark would ever seek out fun. Like, Mark would be the guy in the pool with the camcorder, Mm -hmm. not even fully submerged. And that was a change that the actor made. So that's kind of what they do on set. And that's why David Fincher movies feel so detail-oriented, is because they are. They work through it tirelessly. His shoots go on for, like, three months, and it's this really extensive process where probably a detail like that was like eduardo grabbing two beers was ironed out Mm, who knows mm -hmm. if that was in the script for sure so we talked a little bit about the winklevi twins we haven't brought up the big elephant in the room army hammer um oh we did bring up kevin spacey so yeah (laughs) let's just move smoothly into the cannibal in the room (laughs) yeah so as a lot of people know army hammer is one person and in the movie there are two of him This was my first interaction with him as an actor, so I didn't actually know that he was not a twin. Right. So he had to film everything twice, obviously. They also did facial mocap and were able to transplant his face on the other actor in certain scenes. That other actor was Josh Pence, who is same height, same build as Army Hammer, and originally was cast as, I think it was Cameron... And Aaron Sorkin was going to change it to them being fraternal twins, so with two actors. But early into production, they decided to do this double actor thing. And Josh Pence, to his credit, he's in the behind-the-scenes documentary. He said he was disappointed for a day that he wasn't going to be featured in the movie. 
but then he was just so thankful to be a part of this production and yeah he was there the whole time he is in a scene as well right after eduardo and mark hook up with the two ladies at the bill gates lecture they're standing outside the bathroom and he walks up in his beanie and there and mark's like oh no sorry the two girls are freshening up in there mm-hmm. so they paid respect to him and everyone on the crew loved I mean, that is a, a thankless job to mm. do. So Army Hammer had to do everything twice, but so did Josh. And he's and not. And he didn't even get the face. He's, he's <laughs> not in the movie. He yeah. just played a body. Mm-hmm. And not even his dialogue, right? Because it's all Army Hammer. So what a technical achievement. I think Army Hammer is great in the role. Army Hammer the person. We don't need to get into that. Yes. And I was going to say, to your point, I think he's leagues above his performance in Call Me By Your Name Oh yeah. in this movie. I don't really know what happened with that movie. That was our first episode on Film Is Lit. Mm-hmm. And I think I said that... Call Me By Your Name had no flaws, and I had to walk it back because even before all of the Army Hammer drama came out, I was disappointed by his performance in that, and I don't think there's any reason to cover for it. Like, in the last episode in Power of the Dog, we talked about why it's appropriate for Benedict Cumberbatch to act stiff. Yeah. There's no reason for that in Call Me By Your Name, but Army Hammer is, like, the stiffest actor Mm -hmm. in the whole movie, and there's no reason for it. So I don't know what went wrong there, but he is delivering in this film. So yeah, totally believable. So he's really believable as a twin. He's really believable as a very privileged. And again, not to like get too deep into the Army Hammer drama, but he does come from a family of means. He's right. part of the Hammer family, which is a huge name in Los Angeles in particular. I grew up going to the Hammer Museum and when this whole stuff started coming about coming out about his private life, I was actually floored to find out that he's part of that like museum family with right. again, I mean, you can't really collect art without a lot of money. So that was really surprising to me and so it it is kind of interesting to see him in this role that he takes on with an easy mantle i would say and it kind of turns out that he comes from that kind of family too and an incredible feat of the movie which the book is not successful at is differentiating tyler and cameron yes so well said it's very confusing in the book i mean i guess it doesn't matter because it's like they're twins (laughs) don't matter (laughs) but in the movie Especially after the upteenth time since I've seen it, I always know when Tyler is talking and when Cameron is talking. Cameron mm. is the more polite, affable twin. Mm. Tyler is the more aggressive, masculine, tenacious twin. Interesting. He's, he's the one who breaks the doorknob off. I haven't picked off. up on this yet. He's yeah. the one who immediately wants to sue Mark. Yeah. And Cameron's like, no, we're men of Harvard. We do not <laughs> sue. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of incredible, his performance. Again, I am sorry to praise him, but, you know, it, it was weird how he wasn't nominated for an Oscar, despite this dual performance. A lot of time, dual performances are nominated. Hmm. It was also crazy, segue, how <laughs> our boy JT was not nominated. Supporting for best supporting yeah best supporting he is not yeah. the strongest actor but 
The guy's it, talented. He's talented. <laughs> he's certainly a talented comedian. I mean, on yes. SNL, he's oh, he's one of the best me? The, guest hosts of all time. Yeah, the cup of soup, like those. Uh-huh. What is it? The gosh, bring it on down. Yeah, bring it on down to xt <laughs> yeah those blew my mind i yeah. thought they were so funny yeah in this movie he was the perfect fit for sean parker does he look like sean parker does <laughs> no no, no. <laughs> he's he, jt he's justin timberlake <laughs> he looks like justin timberlake to the point where there were moments in the movie where i was like why aren't they playing in sync yeah <laughs> during this party <laughs> does he act like the real sean parker did according to ben mesrick Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. This yeah. person who owns the room, he's a complete fraud in the sense that he doesn't have any money. But at the end of the day, and I think this is more established in the book, Eduardo Saverin gives Sean Parker credit for getting that first investor, Peter BC. Thiel. Yeah, yeah, Peter Thiel from PayPal, I believe. Yeah, I think it was PayPal. Yeah. That's something that the book really leans into that the movie does not. And the, the whole time the movie, Eduardo hates Sean. Yeah. And then there's no real, real end to that thread. Whereas even though Eduardo at all times doesn't want Sean on the team in the book, Ben Mesrick does posit that Eduardo is aware that they owe the initial success of Facebook to Sean. Uh, despite the fact that he was an absolute mess and got fired from being the president for his partying lifestyle. So this is something that I think is really interesting. This is something that the book and the movie flirt with. I think there's literally so much else going on about people's insecurities Mm -hmm. that this gets almost buried, but it's a very old idea in literature about old and new money. Mm -hmm. And Eduardo... Well, Eduardo is kind of from New Money. We get a little bit of background into him, more so in the book than in the movie. But what Eduardo goes after is what he knows as old money. And these are investors who are coming from New York and mostly the East Coast, mostly from New York, but he's sort of all over the East Coast. And what Mark accurately comprehends is that websites and web advertising is something that's more successfully targeted at new money. And if there's anywhere that's known now, especially for new money, it's Silicon Valley. Yeah. And that, that sort of new money idea, especially is rooted in people like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs that are very recognizable and we get that confirmation in the movie because Bill Gates literally gives and in the and in the book Bill Gates gives a lecture at Harvard. Yeah. So we know that you know these these web developers are aware of who those people of where those people are and where that money is. And I really love the idea that it's it's so accurate for Mark to go after that. Yeah, and it's and so to be seduced to be it. seduced by that because there's like billions of dollars in both courts. But I think it's a really interesting way of approaching the conversation about like 
you know, old money is very judgmental and exclusive. And new money, while it's exclusive, it's also always going after the next big thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas, again, like old money is like Wall Street and, you know, the the rowing clubs and the final clubs and the Ivy Leagues and stuff like that. I, I just love, I feel like we could like crack this nut open right. and continue to talk about it. But my point is that I love how that bolsters the differences between how Eduardo and the Winklevi are going after this money Whereas Mark is prescient enough. And I think that that, again, like it shows that Mark is smart enough to know where to go to make billions of dollars, but that doesn't forgive him for being a dick. Right. (laughs) He's still a piece of shit. And he doesn't know how to- People can change, but Mark Zuckerberg's kind of a, he hasn't changed yet. (laughs) He wishes he could have the personality of Sean Parker Mm -hmm. and the movie especially- hits the nail and the head oh, in yeah. there because of JT's performance and of Jesse Eisenberg's performance in his reactions. Yeah. I mean, my second favorite scene of the movie is the montage of them at the restaurant oh meeting for the first time yeah. with that Nine Inch Nails score. It's so incredible. And you can just see that Sean is everything that Mark wants to be. Just as in another Fincher movie, Tyler Durden is everything mm. that the narrator wants to be, that yeah. Edward Norton wants to be. So it's this thread in Fincher movies of jealousy, but also respect and envy, albeit misplaced. I was going to say, especially misplaced, yes. because we know that Sean Parker is completely out of control. Yes. He's literally sleeping with like Stanford college students. When he's like in his 30s. Like this is kind of a sad guy. And we get more background into his character, like his real personality Mm -hmm. in the book. We find out that he not only has he founded Napster, he was also kicked out of this like Rolodex, like proto Rolodex online thing as well. And so he's been in Mark's position twice Mm -hmm. where he's been the brains behind a company And because of his erratic behavior, he's been kicked out of those two companies and he hasn't really made a lot of money. So he isn't what he purports himself to be, but Mark is still enthralled by his status. And again, that's another like way that our audiences can see that Mark is only after appearance. Right. And that's the big Greek tragedy of it all is that at the end of the day, Mm. Mark is the youngest billionaire in the world. But he hasn't gained what he wanted to, which was status. So I love the moment, right, (laughs) a lot of people are very judgmental. He's still, people like me are very judgmental against him, but he's still making money off me because I'm on Facebook and they have ads on Facebook and that's how they make their money. (laughs) And, you know, he's married with a kid, you know, but I love that moment in the restaurant, like you were just talking about, when he happens to run into... Rooney Mara's character, Erica, and she hasn't heard of Facebook. And whether that's true or not, whether she's saying that because she's seen his name associated with the company and the webpage, that slays him. He literally cannot take that. He cannot handle the fact that she isn't impressed by him. It motivates him to expand. Exactly. That's that's the catalyst for him to expand. That's the catalyst for Face Smash. So... That's what he cares about. Yeah, absolutely incredible. I, I'm a little bitter to the Academy for not recognizing both JT and I guess 
Army Hammer, but <laughs> but yeah, more so JT. This then segues. I know you wanted to talk about the sound design. So, oh my god! So the yes. the scene that it, it's cliche for film majors because we've seen this scene countless times in class. It's the scene. Just keep talking. Where where Sean and Mark go to a club, and that's where JT goes. This is our time, and he's talking about you know expanding even more and getting investors and getting more investors, and like sticking it to the man, right? Why the scene is so incredible, and again, if you're a film major listening to this, I'm sorry to talk about something you've already talked about a million times, but that scene is so incredible because the music and the ambient noise is so loud Mm -hmm. that you can barely hear what the characters are saying, like you're in a real club. Yeah, like you're sitting at the table with them. Exactly, but the sound is mixed in such a way even though you can barely hear them, you can still hear them. Most club scenes, the ambient noise and the music is turned down really low and you can hear what they're saying exactly. With this scene, you need to lean forward, you need to pay attention, and if you do, like it, you're in a real club, you can understand what they're saying. I would also argue, or I would add the layer, that Aaron Sorkin isn't an idiot and he doesn't give you any information that you haven't necessarily already heard or that you can't pick up on earlier in the movie so that even if you miss a word here and there, all you're getting in that scene is supportive evidence for what you already know. Yeah. So it's so brilliant because you don't need to hear every word. Mm-hmm. And that's the point. All you see, again, it's, it's a very similar scene to what you see in the restaurant. Yeah. Sean Parker is impressive to Mark Zuckerberg, and that's all that matters in that scene. That's right. all you need. But it's almost like a show off moment of like the sound mixers, the sound editing, the actors, and what David Fincher can bring to the screen is like this is, and uh, sorry, excuse me, I didn't mean to leave out Aaron Sorkin. Yeah. I'm saying Don't that this dare. is like, I, this is like such a flex scene because it doesn't need to be in there. But it's such a wonderful way of, like, bolstering what you already know. Yeah. And drama biopics rarely get nominated for best sound mixing, but this Mm. film did. Yeah. Usually best sound mixing is reserved for, like, blockbusters. That's the only thing they get nominated for. Like, big special effects space operas. Like Star Wars. And Dune. Uh, And Dune. Um, But this was nominated. It didn't win. It did win best editing. Kirk Baxter and Angus Wall, they won. Well-deserved. This movie is just like an F1 formula race where it's just like moving and moving. Compact. Yeah, it just flows. And then the story is kind of like an F1 formula crash where it's like this fast-paced thing and it's just this explosion that's like tragic but also beautiful to watch and thrilling. Yeah, this movie took home the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay, Aaron Sorkin, which was his first win, by the way. Wow. And his only win? His only win. Academy Award? That's crazy. That's crazy. He's been nominated a bunch of times, only won once. That's actually absurd. Kirk Baxter and Angus Wall, they won the next year for The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. We we Mm -hmm. covered that in our episode. And then we've also discussed... 
Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross won for Best Original Score. This was nominated for Best Picture. Everyone thought it was going to win. And Best Director. Lost both those to The King's Speech. You know everyone's favorite movie, The King's Speech? Well, everyone's mom's favorite movie. True. Um, No. So, again, not to beat a dead horse, but I love that you use the word blockbuster because when you think of blockbuster, you think of like Steven Spielberg created this genre of movie, right? So mm-hmm. when you see a blockbuster, you think back to Jaws, you know, you think a- back to E.T. Actually, the, the first blockbuster was Thunderball in 1964. That movie fucking sucks. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my point it's is... It's a common misconception. That <laughs> I have talked about this on the podcast before on our episodes of, I guess movies and tv shows that we wish were books because we want to talk about them so badly on this podcast but we can't because of our our own parameters of what we cover but the club scene is what i like to call a flea bag moment where in flea bag the idea that flea bag is talking to the camera is so good conceptually that it makes any content that breaks the fourth wall before or after it look bad Mm. because it has such a compelling idea i'm not gonna not gonna spoil it for anyone who hasn't watched fleabag but if you haven't you're fucking stupid (laughs) and you need to go watch it on amazon even though i hate amazon it makes every content before and after look so bad because its concept is so compelling the club scene in this is so well done and simulates that feeling of being in a club with loud music when you have to scream and sort of communicate things on the downbeat of the music, Mm -hmm. that it makes everything before and after look excruciatingly bad. And especially when club scenes are very common in stuff like rom-coms that have low budget, you know, I don't want to shit on them too hard because I, you know, I myself, I love rom-coms. I love a good rom-com. But, you know, they're low budget and they don't have the artist's like David Fincher and the sound mixers and the script to work with something like this that's so artistically created right? And that it makes everyone else look bad. So this is its fleabag moment. It's so good. And if you watch, again, if you're sitting in 2022 watching a rom-com from 2009, which is when this, or 2010 when this movie came out, you're like, ah, but it's not the social network. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. Oh, it's a, it's such peak sound mixing. It's incredible. Yeah. Sorry. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. No, get back on. I love that. You want me to do a little dance? Do a little twirl. <laughs> Listeners can't see this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely incredible. Bitter that this didn't win Best Picture and Best Director. It deserved it. A little bit about the score, I wanted yes. to say. So this was Nine Inch Nails' first movie score. David Fincher had worked with Trent Reznor in the past. He used one of his songs to open the movie Seven. Hmm. And then around 2007... Nine Inch Nails released Ghosts, Volumes 1 through 4, which is a four-part instrumental album. And David Fincher used that album as a temp score for this movie Mm. as he was editing it. And then he reached out to Trent Reznor being like, I want you to score this movie. Your album Ghosts is basically a movie score in itself. And Trent Reznor was just coming off a musical tour and said, "Ah, I don't really have the time or energy right now. And then uh, he said no. 
Trent Reznor said no and wasn't to pl- David Fincher. <laughs> yep, wasn't planning on moving into scores. I guess he's not an actor. Um, a month goes by. Trent Reznor calls back David Fincher, says, "I've made a grave mistake. I do want to score this after all. Please don't tell me that someone else has filled the role." And David Fincher says, I was waiting for you to say yes. I didn't hire anyone else. They literally paused the post-production to wait for Trent Reznor. But then Trent Reznor, he was biting off a bit more than he could chew. So he brought on Atticus Ross, who had done film scores in the past. And then they collaborated on that, won an Oscar. And then a few years later, Atticus Ross formally joined Nine Inch Nails. Mm. Uh, what a beautiful love story. I know. And, I love that. And they just won their second Oscar for Soul, their score on Soul. I was going to say, if I would argue if I'm not listening to a Johnny Greenwood score, I'm listening to an Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor score. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're so good. <laughs> they're one of the guys, like in the top five right now. They're, mm. yeah, Johnny Greenwood, uh, Nine Inch Nails, Nicholas Bertel. Mm. I would say Ludwig Goranson is up there. And then Hans Zimmer, of course. Those are the five right now. That are like working the I'm most. Sure, I'm sure we're forgetting some people. Oh, yeah. But those are, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Nicholas Patel. We don't have to get into Nicholas Patel yeah. right now. Yeah, we can move on. Um, yeah, I just have one more critique and that's that's it. Well, I guess as long as we're still on the sound, I was just going to say that I think this, this movie is so incredible with sound because every single room sounds different. Mm. Like, you know how when the Winklevi approach Mark Zuckerberg and they're in the, the bike room of the pork, mm-hmm. that echoing sound is amazing. And right. then the dorm rooms sound different. And then the party sounds different. I just, uh, anyway, I, I just wrote down like specific points where the sound sounded different and authentic to the environment that they were in. Mm-hmm. So that's it. Yeah, continue <laughs> with your... My last thing is that I think while the book, for the most part, is expertly written, Ben Mesrick kind of drops the ball with his final where are they now because mm-hmm. it's a lot of speculation. And he, what he does a lot is he says, there's no hard facts out there, but evidence suggests... And he doesn't cite the evidence... So he suggests that the Winklevi, they won a large amount, but that they weren't satisfied with it. It's like In the settlement. Right, in the settlement. Saying, yeah. It's like, why weren't they, like, what were they going for? Um, and then, then the same thing with Eduardo. And I just, it wasn't as adeptly written as most of the book, as 90% mm-hmm. of the book was. It kind of just peters out for me. Whereas the movie is so incredible That by the time the two-hour mark arrives, you're like, wait, what the heck? It's over? And it ends with him refreshing the page after friend requesting Erica, a brilliant ending, bringing it back to the beginning. That's what Aaron Sorkin does. Bringing it back to how he can't be vulnerable. Right. And it just ends so quickly. Like, Sean Parker is arrested, right? David Fincher is such a precise filmmaker that even when they're having a phone conversation, a scene he still adheres to the 180-degree rule. So one character, Sean, yes. is on one side of the room and Mark is on the other, talking on the phone to simulate spatial awareness, right? And then as Sean is freaking out and moving across the room, Mark, in the other scene, swivels his chair so then he's on the other side. So it's he still adheres to that rule. The movie is so good that you want more. And even though two hours is 
a perfect amount for me. Dare I say this is one of the few exceptions where yeah. I want it to go on longer. Of course. I mean, you know, we've we've covered four David Fincher films. I, it's safe to say we're ready for another. Yes. <laughs> Does he have another one that's based on a book? Oh, one know. coming out this year, that's baby. That's right. The There's killer. a new one. <laughs> Starring Michael Fassbender, and it's about an assassin. Sign me up. That sounds like my perfect movie. Obviously. Sign you, me, and your brothers up. Because I'm yeah. sure that they both want to cover it on this podcast, too. Right. All right. Closing thoughts on both the book and the movie. You know... Closing shout out to the costuming team because costuming is difficult, but we always see at the Oscars those quote unquote tour de force Mm -hmm. films where there's a tutor film um mm. or something like the favorite or the something renaissance like, right exactly or something like dune which is or or black panther where it's all from the imagination and did i just say imagination i actually love that because it's ha- like how you're birthing mm. the costumes from your mind the futurist women <laughs> exactly who's the costumer for black panther what's her name Oh, Springfield Mass. Yes, she's from Springfield. What is her name? I'll figure it out. Keep talking. Okay, so I wanted to give a shout out to a movie like this that was not nominated for costuming, but evokes an almost visceral memory of how I dressed in Mm. 2009 and 2010. Or I guess this took place in like 2002, 2004. So did you find the... Yeah. Ruth E. Carter. Yeah. She did an amazing job with Black Panther. But for someone like Jacqueline West, who had to go back to like recent, mm-hmm. within the last like five years of when this movie dropped, it, it you have to be so authentic because everybody is judging it on what they wore in all of their Facebook pictures, right? Yeah. That's what's captured is, you know, Facebook profile pictures of the, like the long tank top the layered long tank top and the backward hats and the Gap sweaters. Oh my goodness, Gap was everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. And the way that they utilize very strategically, I will say, the brands Patagonia and North Face. If you notice who wears what in different situations, and we, remember we talked about like old money and new money, like Patagonia and North Face are obviously very new money West Coast costumes versus things like Brooks Brothers, which is specifically, explicitly called out in the movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Ralph Lauren or Abercrombie and Fitch, those popped mm. collars. Yeah. <laughs> like you have that picture of you in the pop collar. Yeah. So anyway, I was going to say, I think that the costuming was really intentional in this. And I wanted to, if, if she's not going to get an Oscar shout out, <laughs> she's going to get a shout out from Film is Lit. It's funny. You mentioned Dune earlier. Jacqueline West also did the did costume design really? for Dune. Oh, my mind is blown. Yeah. Thank you for knowing that. That's really exciting. Well, congratulations to her because that is, I think that actually like proves her expertise right. in everything from like mundane costuming to something like Dune, which is obviously like very sci-fi. So shout out to her and her team. I'm sure she has a huge team. The other thing I was going to mention, and I think this is my last point, but our... Uh, Landlord. Lam- our property manager, apparently, <laughs> is in this movie. Extra. We, he's an extra. We intentionally looked for him, <laughs> but mm-hmm. we didn't see him in this movie. He's 
he's a he's he's a card. He's a character. Um, yeah. But we looked for him in this watch of the movie. And in we the didn't see him. the Jewish fraternity Niagara Falls scene, the party. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are my thoughts. I mean, the book. Honestly, I really didn't enjoy it, but it's because of like my own issues with sensationalized nonfiction. So I'm gonna give it a one out of four. Oh I, my goodness. I'm sorry. Whoa. I thought it was really bad. Um, Whoa. <laughs> okay. <laughs> sorry. All right. And One out movie? of four. Movie four out of four. This last watch of it made me want to reshuffle my top 100 slash top 10 to sort of see where that fits in. Because I don't even think it's on my top 100. Uh, so uh, I want to like reshuffle it. I don't know if it'll crack my top 10, but mm-hmm. but it was so good. Maybe yeah. it will. It's I don't expert. know. Who yeah. knows? We haven't been this far on a book in a while. I'm going three and a half stars just because it's compared to the movie. I mean, I would okay. this I would give it a four, but you just can't in comparison to the perfection that the movie is. I'm, I'm going four, obviously, for the movie, if that wasn't apparent. Um, yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, it's a you thing, but I just really enjoyed it. It's just such an intriguing, fascinating story. And I think told well in a succinct fashion. That I appreciated for the most part. So yeah, three and a half. I, I'm sorry. I couldn't disagree more. I just flipped through the book and I wrote redundant at least six times in the margin. So I, I can't agree that it's succinct. I'm sure we'll fight but... about this over the dinner table <laughs> All right. some other night. <laughs> um, All right. Well, That's fine. yeah. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with our coverage on Persepolis. Sopolis? Yeah, Persepolis. Persepolis. And we're almost at our last episode of season eight. Seven. Seven. Yeah. So thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the web. Facebook (laughs) us. Bye.